بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه أجمعين أما بعد الحمد لله from amongst the verses which were recited Allah سبحانه وتعالى says in the end of سورة الأنعام وأن هذا صراطي مستقيما فاتبعوه وَلَا تَتَّبِعُوا السُّبُلْ فَتَفَرَّقَ بِكُمْ عَنْ سَبِيلِهِ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given us the path to follow, which is the way of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and his way which was displayed by the people who were in his company. وَلَا تَتَّبِعُوا السُّبُلْ And do not follow the various paths which seem to be claiming to be that of truth. فَتَفَرَّقَ بِكُمْ عَنْ سَبِيلِهِ It would take you away from the straight path. So this is the way of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam as presented to us by the Sahaba radiallahu anhum and the illustrious scholars of deen. And I wish to just touch on a particular topic very briefly inshallah and without much detail I hope. And that is of the aspect of following a particular imam of a madhab. Because some people use this particular verse and say that you have Hanafi, Shafi'i, Maliki, and Hanbali. So you've got various roots and you have deviated from the path of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So firstly, it is important for us to understand that the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, amongst them, there were approximately 17 who were given the authority to give fatwa and teach other people with the permission of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. We all know that in the Hajjatul Wada' the final Hajj of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam there were more than 120,000 Sahaba present so to answer the question the 120,000 when Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam had left this world if they needed to understand a particular verdict of Sharia who would they ask? they would ask those individuals that Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam authorized to be able to to give the particular verdict from the teachings of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and from the Quran. I did mention previously, I think it was in the Jumu'ah talk, that in terms of Sharia, a person who is not qualified to make an utterance with regards to an aspect of Quran and Hadith, if he does so in the light of Sharia, he is termed as a criminal. And the example I gave at that time was in the Hadith where Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam was met by a group of Sahaba who returned from an expedition. And they had a particular Sahabi with them who had suffered a head injury. And at night he had a nocturnal emission. He required ghusl in the morning. And the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, they did not know the ruling that this person is not obliged to make ghusl in that particular state. Because if water enters the wound, it could prove fatal. Which is exactly what happened. They said, no, 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 we don't know anything. You need to make ghusl. So he made the ghusl and water entered the wound and he passed away. When they informed Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa of this, Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa said that they are guilty, they are responsible for taking his life. Why didn't they ask? Inna shifa'ul su'al. The cure for ignorance is to ask. Ask if you do not know. So in Sharia, if you do not know something, don't say, oh, it's my opinion, I think, I heard, okay, maybe this is what I feel. So the 120,000 sahaba, if they needed to know something, they would ask Sayyidina Abu Bakr, Sayyidina Umar, Sayyidina Uthman, Sayyidina Ali, those who are known to be the scholars of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum. Now, the second generation, 
Did Islam increase or decrease thereafter? Gee, brothers, a little bit. I know we're all tired. It increased, okay? And if I had to ask in the gathering, not to, to be condescending in any way, but general, just general knowledge, for the average person to name the 17 Sahaba who are known as the Fuqah, it would be difficult even for a student because you need to be frequently accustomed to saying their names. Now, in the next generation, the amount of Muslims increased dramatically. They moved to, to Egypt, to Iraq, to Iran, to Bilad al-Sham, which is comprised of four countries, Syria, Jordan, Palestine, and, and Lebanon. So Islam spread to all these countries. So the amount of, of Muslims, the number increased. But now if we ask even scholars, name the jurists who were present in that time, they'll give a few. They'll take the, the names, maybe Imam Abu Hanifa is one of them, Imam Malik, rahimahullah, maybe Sufyan Thawri, and they'll give uh, maybe 10. So when the number of Muslims increased, the amount of jurists that we can count are fewer. So what were those millions of Muslims doing? They were following the way explained by these scholars. So when a person says that he is Hanafi, we commonly hear a person saying, you say the kalima, ashadu an la ilaha illallah, ashadu anna Muhammad rasulullah but you say you're Hanafi. So that's, that, that question is actually a question of a person who is deluded because he doesn't know what he's asking. Once a young friend of mine, he was studying medicine somewhere, and he said to me, Moana, uh, can I ask you a question? I was in Medina Munawwara. So he said to me, um, should I follow the Quran and Hadith or should I follow Imam Abu Hanifa? Which is a commonly posed question. We might have heard the question already. So I said to him, I thought to myself, I'm not going to go into a long argument and explanation because when you're in Medina Munawwara, the last thing you want to do is argue and debate with anyone. So I thought, I'll turn to Allah and just try to explain to him in the best way possible. I said to him, okay, um, you say the Hadith of Rasulullah Sallallahu Quran and Hadith or Imam Abu Hanifa? Um, what of Abu Hanifa? You're saying, you're comparing what of Imam Abu Hanifa? He said, no, must I follow Quran and Hadith or the view of Imam Abu Hanifa? So I said, the view, what view of Imam Abu Hanifa? So he said, no, the view of Imam Abu Hanifa of Quran and Hadith. So I said, my brother, what do you think would be safer for a person like me to follow the view of Imam Abu Hanifa of Quran and Hadith or the view of a young boy like you studying medicine in a particular country? So he said, Jazakallah, understood. The point is that these people were experts in the field of all the, the sciences required to understand the text of Sharia. It's not merely a superficial reading of some text. Even people who are in, um, who are in law, uh, judges and lawyers, they know exactly that a common person would, uh, would be unable to quote for them the text that they require to analyze certain issues. Imam Ahmad bin Hanbal, the, the fourth of the four imams, his student asked him that... If a person has memorized 100,000 hadith, uh, is he good enough to be a mujtahid? A mujtahid means a jurist who is able to give verdicts and explain the masail from Quran and hadith, deduce from Quran and hadith the explanations of sharia. Imam Ahmad said no. 100,000 hadith. I'm not talking of only the few thousand in Sahih al-Bukhari or a few thousand in Sahih Muslim. 100,000 with its chain of transmissions up to Rasulullah sallallahu Imam Ahmad said no, no. A hundred thousand? No, no. And in the terminology of hadith, a person who has memorized one hundred thousand hadith of Bahad is called a hafiz al-hadith. It's called a hafiz. We have a hafiz of the Qur'an. And in the science of hadith, if a person has memorized one hundred thousand hadith, he's called a hafiz of hadith. And one of the four imams is saying, if you know a hundred thousand, you're not yet qualified to be an imam, a mujtahid, to be able to deduce 
the various verdicts of Sharia. So the student said, what about 200,000? He said, no, no, not even 200,000. He said, 300,000, he said, no. He said, 400,000, he said, yes, perhaps. Imam Ahmad bin Hanbal was a student of Imam al-Shafi'i. And he said, I never saw a more knowledgeable person than Imam al-Shafi'i in my life. Imam Shafi'i was the student of Imam Malik, rahimahullah. And he was a student of the student of Abu Hanifa, Imam Muhammad ibn al-Hassan al-Shaybani. And about Imam Malik, rahimahullah, it is said, La yufti wa malikun fil Medina. It's not possible for anybody to pass a fatwa while Imam Malik is in Medina. And Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, he, his knowledge was known to the people of Iraq and the people who stayed in his company. Imam Malik, rahimahullah, said about Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, if he wished to, to prove to me that this pillar is made of gold, he would have the ability to do so intellectually. That, that is how strong he was in his presenting of his argument. So these imams, it is, they are not the only four imams who existed in the past of Islam. There were other imams as well. Imam Ibn Jarir al-Tabari, and there were many others, Sufyan al-Thawri, there were many ulama. But these imams, their speciality was that in their lifetime, with the company of their students, they deduced and explained the masail from Quran and Hadith relating to the aspects of a fetus before it is born, right up to inheritance. And such masail I mentioned, if I, if I have to tell you, you'll think, why did they have to go to that extent? They have explained masail, hypothetical masail, that if a person passes away and hypothetically his father's Father's, 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 father, or his father's mother's mother. Nine generations up is still surviving, alive. How would she get her share of the estate? They've explained everything in detail. So because it was codified in this particular way, and easy for the average person to practice upon knowing that when he says he is Hanafi, he is not denouncing the kalima. He's saying, I'm following the Quran and the Hadith as explained by Imam Abu Hanifa. I'm following the Quran and the Sunnah as explained by Imam al-Shafi'i. I'm following the Qur'an and Sunnah as explained by Imam Malik. It is an understanding which we need to keep in our mind. It's nothing to do with uh, turning away from the teachings of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So these imams, when they presented something as, for example, in the Hanafi Madhab, if Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah says something is Sunnah, then he has kept in front of him in the company of his students. Forty used to sit every day and discuss the Masail of Deen. That from which verse would this particular uh, hukam and ruling of sharia be deduced? Which hadith would actually support this? What would be a hypothetical scenario? Imam Abu Hanifa, the amazing thing of his madhab is that in Iraq, it was the center of the Islamic world which for the first time was exposed to the Persian uh, mentality and their ideology. And even the people from, from China... They were exposed to the Roman Empire and the various types of ideologies. So Imam Abu Hanifa rahimahullah developed a methodology of being able to sit down with his students and then say, if somebody happens to pose this question with regards to an aspect of deen, how would we respond? So normally we don't discuss hypothetical things, but in matters of deen, the hypothetical masail are documented more than 60,000 masail in one lifetime. These imams did what in, in the... Imam, imam Shafi'i rahimahullah, by the way, he passed away at the age of 54. At the age of 54, he passed away after uh, mentioning and writing down all these masail from Quran and Hadith and teaching it to his students. So yes, obviously, people in this generation, a person knows a few words of Arabic, it doesn't necessarily make me qualified to say that I'm hum rijal wa nahnu rijal, that they are men and I'm also men, I've got the Quran and Hadith. It doesn't, uh, it, 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 is, it is unjustifiable for a person to make such a claim because without that which was presented by them, 
it would be inevitable for, impossible for a person to be able to explain anything from hadith. And I'll conclude with one story. This wasn't my intention, but I'm just going to conclude with this. Imam Abu Hanifa, rahmatullahi alayhi, had one student, Abu Yusuf al-Qadi. Ya'qub was his name. Imam Abu Yusuf, rahimahullah. And he said, he, I stayed in the company of Imam Abu Hanifa for more than 29 years. We're not talking of doing a four-year course in the Darul Ulum, a five-year course in the Darul Ulum, or a two-year Arabic course somewhere. 29 years with your Ustad. And one day Imam Abu Yusuf became ill. So when he was ill, his teacher, Imam Abu Hanifa, came to visit him. But he was not feeling well. He had a fever and he was, he was like knocked out. Imam Abu Hanifa looked at him and said, لو مات هذا لضاع حظ وافر من علم الدين. If this student of mine has to pass away, then a large portion of the knowledge of deen is going to be lost to the ummah. Now, I mean, what better um, authorization can you get from a teacher in favor of his student? So when he recovered, they told him, Ustad was here to visit you. And this is what he said. Sayyidina Abu Yusuf thought, okay, alhamdulillah, I've got permission to start my own branch. So he branched off and he started his own gathering in his area without speaking to his teacher. Imam Abu Hanifa said, Aina Ya'qub, where's Ya'qub? We haven't seen him. Did he recover? What's happening? They said, no, no, he's okay, alhamdulillah. But he started his own little gathering, his own group, his own madrasa. You know, like we have also nowadays, if I don't like you, I start my own organization. Just new organizations mushrooming up in the whole dunya. So Imam Abu Hanifa said, okay. So he sent a man to ask Abu Yusuf a hypothetical question. He said that um, the man came to him, I'll just try to be brief, and he said that I took some material to what is called a qassar, maybe the, laun- the, the laundry man who either washes or dyes clothes, changes the color of, of clothing. So I asked this individual, okay, I'm going to pay you for changing this color from white to blue. He says, okay. So he, the question is that I've, I've given him the material, and now when I come back to collect the, the goods or the material that I wanted dyed, he refuses. He says, no, I don't have it. And then after a little while, he tells me, no, no, come here. Yes, yes, the material, you can take it. So does he deserve to be paid or not? Must he be paid uh, the, for, for the work that he has done or not? So uh, Imam Abu Yusuf said, well, he needs to be paid. So the person who was sent by Abu Hanifa said, no, the answer is wrong. And he thought, he said, well, okay, maybe because he denied having it, so he doesn't have to be paid. He said, well, that is also wrong. So Imam Abu, Imam Abu Yusuf immediately realized that this question came from his teacher. So he went to Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, and when he entered the classroom, Imam Abu Hanifa smiled at him. And he said, ما جاء بك إلا مسألة القصار. That one small masala of dying clothing is what brought you to me again. And then he said a famous statement in which I normally present, when somebody speaks against any of the imams of deen, I present this one sentence and ask him to translate it. Because many people say Imam Abu Hanifa was a Persian, he didn't know Arabic. He said, Tazabbabta qabla an tuhasrim. This is a type of Arabic you, you won't normally hear when you're saying kefal hal and you're just buying some gahwa and coffee and tea. You know? He said, Tazabbabta qabla an tuhasrim. Zabib in Arabic is, is a raisin. And in the zakat of fruit, which is given for grapes and dates, the last form of, of a grape is a, is a raisin, after which it doesn't go off. So you give the zakat of grapes in the form of a raisin. So he said, my son, who studied with him more than 29 years, you became a raisin before becoming a grape. You became a raisin 
before becoming, in fact, not even a grape. Hisrim actually means that small bubble that forms on the vine before the actual grape pops out. So he said, before even becoming that, you are already becoming a, a raisin. So this was the, the intellectual strength that these ulama had. And all the, the imams amongst the madahib, there was never ever a conflict that the Hanafis on Batil or the Shafi'is, all of them, they defend the same thing. They defend the sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So if Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, for example, it is transmitted from him that he would fasten his hands below the navel, that particular hadith reached Imam Abu Hanifa and he transmitted that to his, to, to his congregation and his students, which was codified and documented. Imam al-Shafi'i says that the hands are fastened above the navel. So in that case, if a person wanted to only make one madhab, it would be, he would perhaps do so, but he wouldn't be able to protect and preserve all the sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So the hikmah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the wisdom is that by doing the practices which was established and explained by these imams, you're indirectly being, uh, you're participating in defending and protecting every sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So I thought I'll just open a bit on this particular topic for us to feel at ease that when a person is adhering to a madhab, he's actually adhering to the sunnah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa because following seniors in knowledge was the practice of every generation in our deen. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all the true understanding. Wa akhiru da'wana alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.